I played it cool until I got there, and then I did lose it a little bit. Yeah. It's naturally, you know, it's this is you gotta understand. From childhood, my compasses musically were Prince and Michael Jackson. And it's like everything that I've done as a musician or as a songwriter or as an engineer, it's like that's the DNA of where I start. That's awesome, man. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Chris James a Grammy-nominated engineer and super-talented musician, producer, and mixer. I've known Chris for many years. In fact, we played in bands together in college, and he was my roommate in our shared band house back when I used to do stupid stuff like throw a giant sausage through the living room window with a lacrosse stick. That was the story that Matt Mahaffey didn't want me to finish on the previous episode. (laughs) But fortunately, we've all grown up and gotten more serious these days, Chris now lives out in Los Angeles, working with some of the greatest artists on the planet, creating music in the pop, rock, and R&B genres while signed to Universal Music Publishing Group. Born in Memphis, Chris attended Middle Tennessee State University, where he studied recording and music before touring as a keyboardist in the alternative band Self, again with Matt Mahaffey guest on episode 69, moving from Nashville to L.A., Apart from his work as a musician, he has also produced, recorded, and or mixed material for many artists such as Luther Vandross, Van Hunt, Neo, Paramore, Frank Ocean, Miguel, and others, playing instruments on many of the recordings. In 2012, he began a working relationship with Prince at his Paisley Park recording compound in Chanhassen, Minnesota. Chris went on to mix a huge number of productions by Prince, The New Power Generation, Third Eye Girl, as well as other artists such as Larry Graham and Janelle Monae. In December of 2015, Prince's hit-and-run Phase 2 was released, and a month later, Chris began work on what would become Prince's last-known studio recording project before his death in April. Hit-and-run Phase 2 earned a 59th Grammy Award nomination for the Best Engineered Album Non-Classical. Sunday, February 12th, in a few days, Chris James will be attending the Grammy Award ceremonies as a first-time nominee. Also, this year, Chris will be traveling the globe with the band Kings of Leon as a broadcast mix engineer on select dates. Please welcome Chris James to Recording Studio Rockstars. Chris, my man, are you ready to rock? Dude, that was such a long intro, but (laughs) yes, I I am ready to rock. Well, you know, we didn't want to leave anything to talk about on the podcast. We just got it all out in the intro. (laughs) Well, it's been great. Between the setup and the intro, I'm (laughs) toast. Yeah, rock stars, we really went the extra mile just setting this stuff up. Sometimes getting a good sounding mic into Skype sounds like a simple thing, but boy, can it be complex. So thank you for going through all that, dude. Hey, I was trying to remember, you know, we used to play in our band, um, Stinky Mifflin. That was the name of our fusion band back in college. And we all had different names. What was yours? Dude, I honestly don't remember. Do you? I remember that um, Stinky Mifflin was Sam, our drummer, and then Ben was Gertz Basmati. And I don't even remember who I was. Who was I? I don't remember. We must have had names. 
I just simply don't remember. Wow. Oh, well. We'll have to come back. If we remember it later, Rockstars, we'll throw it into the show notes so you can check it out. So, Chris, man, that was my uh, long-winded introduction. Can you fill in some of the gaps for us? Anything you want to talk about? You know, there's a twist on this. I like to ask guests to tell us, what did starting out and recording smell like to you? Wow. I don't know. That's, That's a really tricky one. Conjure up any memories of your first studios or band rehearsal spaces or where you, you know, were first playing music? Uh, the smell of tape. Yeah, that's a that's a really good coffee. one. Coffee, morning coffee and tape. An- analog tape just like flying <laughs> off the tape machine. Yeah, the, the smell of alcohol, razors, and analog tape. Uh, rock stars, those razors were used for cutting the tape, not for what any other thing you were thinking of. <laughs> we weren't recording in the seventies. We didn't start till. <laughs> it depends on the session. <laughs> so. We went to school together. One of the things I really appreciated about being at MTSU together was there was a lot of stuff we learned in school, but I remember having this really strong takeaway that it wasn't so much about that. It was the fact that, you know, school, I think for me was like two and a half years there as a college degree with you guys. But it was the fact that I was just surrounded by other people who all cared about the same thing I did for two and a half years that I learned the most, I think. You know, you remember that experience of just kind of going to the studios all night long and and, uh, doing your sessions there? Absolutely. The biggest thing for me that was so odd was you would do sessions either during the day, evening, or overnight. Those were your options for blocks, and you had to book a certain amount of each. Yeah, and the session would go from like midnight till 4 a.m. or something. Yeah, yeah, you could have a four-hour or eight-hour block, and sometimes it'd be midnight to 8 a.m., and then you'd have class at 9 (laughs) a.m., Oh, those were the days. And I guess it was all just prepping you for the real world. You know, you're going to have to take what you can get and then make the best of it. And then life continues the very next day. Yeah. So there was a lesson in there. And then you go to the uh, the uh, cafeteria and fuel up on a mini pizza and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell us more about your first experiences. I actually didn't realize that you were from Memphis originally. I didn't know you were from the center of musical Southern culture here. Yeah, my parents were both born in Memphis, and I was born there. We lived in Whitehaven, right around the corner from Graceland. So one of my earliest memories was when my sister was born. We were headed to the hospital, and there were all these people crowded around the street like it was a protest or something going on, and that turns out that that was the day Elvis died. Wow. No, I didn't know that. That's that's pretty intense, man. So did your sister feel a little overshadowed at that point or not? I guess she wouldn't have known for a while. I don't think she had thoughts. (laughs) She had a thought, I'm out of here. I'm getting out of here. Well, that's pretty intense, man. Do you remember being really influenced by music in Memphis growing up? Yeah, I listened to K97. It was the R&B station. And hearing Prince and Michael Jackson... Um, the first record I ever bought was the Gap Band 4. Nice. You Dropped the Bomb on Me was on that Love record. Love that one, dude. Love it. I, I want to say I spent seven ninety nine at Peaches <laughs> on that one. I think we were buying our records at Kmart up in Massachusetts. Tell us about leaving Middle Tennessee and kind of going out to L.A. for the first time and what it was like for you to show up in this new place and get settled in with recording and music. Well, I was kind of lucky in the fact that my brother already lived in L.A., So I at least had family, a place to stay, you know, a tour guide of sorts to at least make it a little easier to get around. Yeah. And then also I moved out here with Matt from Self and we had work still to do. There was an album to be made. We were still rehearsing and all these other side projects came up. 
So kind of right off the bat, I was, you know, it wasn't stress city because I had work and I had friends and I had family. Yeah. You knew what you were supposed to do. You weren't just going to a coffee shop and then hoping you'd start meeting some people who played in bands. No, it wasn't like the the poison video where the girl gets off the bus and then just is thrown onto Hollywood Boulevard and, <laughs> and is expected to make a life. <laughs> well, so what were some of the uh, first studios that you got a chance to work at outside of, you know, working with Matt? And I guess, I'm guessing when you were doing the self-record, were you going straight into pro studios or were you really kind of creating home studios to start? Oh, we did a lot of it out of uh, his Laurel Canyon pad when we first got there. This is really cool basement that had drums and amp cabs, and then the control room was upstairs. Yeah, I remember that. It was like you'd, you'd take the stairs down, and there was a tiny room in there for an ISO room. Yeah, so a lot of probably a good hundred songs were recorded that way. Well, so now I also like to ask um, guests to kind of launch us off with an inspirational quote, something to kind of get us kicked off and excited about recording. You got anything you want to share with us? Any wisdom you want to dispel? Sure. This is one that I like. We trust that the magic of sound will contribute to an ever greater measure to the relief of human suffering. Wow, man. How did you feel about that uh, relevant to trying to get a microphone to work in Skype earlier before this? Whereas <laughs> 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 there was quite a bit of human suffering going on there, wasn't it? Exactly. <laughs> What I like about the quote is how important sound is. Yeah. I've been doing projects where um, the low end or the transient, you know, whatever it is in the recording has an effect on the way that you feel. Indeed. So I know that it starts with music, but music is frequencies, which is sound. So let's see. We were talking about, you know, this, the, uh, the relief of, of human suffering. Share with us another story about like an important failure for you, maybe in the studio or maybe just sort of stuff you've learned on the career path doing this. Yeah. Um, one of my earliest memories of really screwing up in the studio was I was interning at Quad. And I don't remember the engineer, but it was one of those guys that walked in with their... 40 space racks full of the best gear known to man. He had like four of them. Yeah. And I didn't at the time know the difference between a DL connector and an Elko connector. <laughs> and before his session, I was trying to plug up one of his racks and ended up pinching all of the pins of his DL connector. Because, oh. you know, you, if you have it turned a certain way and then you try to put it on, it bends the pins. Actually, I'm, I don't, I'm not so familiar with the DL, but I know the Elkos for sure. And what I remember about Elko connectors is that there are a lot of little sort of gold pins in there, all of which are very expensive to replace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the beauty of the Elko is it kind of seats itself and then you just turn a little screw and then it's done. The DL, if it's turned incorrectly and then you force it on, it bends the pins. Wow. That was my first time dealing with a DL. So I learned the hard way that, oh, that's a DL connector. Oh, no. So this is just before a session starts. Was yeah. this one of these classic stories where the producer comes in and, and screams at the top of their lungs and you get fired? And Yeah, it was pretty ugly. I'm glad I made that mistake early on, though. Yeah. But I guess that's, you know, what internships are for growing pains. Well, so, yeah, what was your takeaway from all that? Just that you were glad you made it early or um, <laughs> you, did you ever make that mistake again? Obviously not. No. It's like, don't touch something if you don't know what to do with it. Yeah, right. 
That's what I learned from that. Well, and that's challenging because when you're the assistant, you get a mixed message, right? Because on the one hand, you're supposed to not wait to ask what somebody needs, but deliver it before they even ask you for it. And yet at the same time, if you didn't know what it was, you need to leave it yeah. the F alone. That's where experience really helps. You, you've had enough experiences and you know the different types of connectors or there's always going to be something you've not seen. Yeah, but like a microphone going into Skype. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, how about sharing a, like an aha moment for you? Something where uh, everything just sort of clicked. Honestly, for me, drum triggering. <laughs> I know it's cheating, but no, let's talk about it. That was a huge, that was a huge revelation because I'd grown up listening to so many of these records and thinking, wow, those drums, man, they just sound amazing. Thinking that it was just a drummer playing a kit mic'd up through a fancy set of console or mic pre's with EQs and compressors, not realizing that it was also sonically enhanced by triggering the drums in the mix. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, do you remember when we were roommates still? And then my friend Megan, who's also been on the show, Megan Gohill, brought a band down from St. Louis for us to work with one weekend. And we were doing, I think we were just mixing upstairs in Matt's room. And um, we each did a mix. And I remember you did yours. And I went up there and I was like, holy shit, that sounds killer, you know? And you had busted out like your Atari MIDI computer and you were MIDI triggering on the side, a replacement side stick. I think we were mixing ADATs, but you were doing that. You were already using drum triggers in a mix to make sure that the, the side stick you know, drum part really sounded fantastic and hit the reverb just right. I don't know if you remember that little detail. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Sting's fault. It's, it's the 10 Sumner's tells was popular back then. That was like a nice reference recording that we tried to make records sound like if you were into that. Yeah. Well, I think I was not into it. And so I wasn't chasing it, but then I would walk in and hear what you did. And I was like, whoa, that sounds so much better than what I was doing, you know? So um, it, I think you were learning really cool stuff. And I mean, talk a little bit about that. Cause I mean, I think most of our listeners know about drum triggers, know about the importance of it. They accept it, but it was such a different thing right. when we were first trying this stuff versus what it is now. Can you kind of take us on a little tour of, of drum triggering? Yeah. Well, back then we didn't have the phase coherency that we have now. Like basically you had to do things like copy the track that you were trying to trigger to another track and then digitally move it behind the regular performance so that when it hit, that the trigger would hit in time because there's latency even with MIDI and the time yeah. that it takes to get in and out of the format. Yeah. And we weren't even in a computer. We were mixing off of ADAT. So you probably had to like well, the ADAT actually gave you that functionality where you could move tracks, delay other tracks. or So that that was an early iteration of what we were doing. I think also had an Alesis D4 at some point. You remember the first time you flipped an ADAT backwards and were like, wow, that sounds awesome? No. I'm just pulling your leg, man. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm like, how did you do that? The tape wouldn't play. I just made that shit up. Um, so, okay. yes. Yeah, so, all right. So you're... <laughs> advancing the track slightly so that it sends out to the trigger. Maybe it's sending through MIDI and that delay gets kind of synced back up so that by the time the trigger plays, it's now back in time with the kick or the snare, right? Yeah. So that's what we used to have to do with the analog or digital format back then. But now you have 
plugins, you just throw it on your track and auto delay compensation fixes all of that. And it's glorious. And even before we had slight trigger, for example, um, we were doing drum triggering in Pro Tools, but still we had all kinds of problems. Like triggers wouldn't really work. Um, they would fall out of sync with each other. I remember when I would use um, Sound Replacer and I would, you could replace one, you know, the kick with a kick sample. But then if you go to add another kick sample to it, that one doesn't line up with the first kick sample and it gets all phasey and weird. So it was really a headache to try and get this stuff sounding super tight. Yeah, man. I remember so many records from the 90s where I I didn't like the fact that Pro Tools was delaying or playing back drum samples out of phase. So you literally manually copied in, in the Pro Tools queue and then tabbed to transient and pasted each hit in manually. Yeah, and before tab to transient, we didn't even have tab to transient initially. Remember that? You had to like kind of like go scroll forward and look for the next one. Man. Uh, pretty intense stuff. So... You know, I think one lesson, though, that you did learn from that was not to assume that everything was working. You learned to trust your ears and listen for low end getting out of phase um, and not just, you know, miss that detail and find out later that your mix is not doing so great because all these samples aren't lining up. Do you still carry that through now? Do you still do that when you're mixing or adding samples where you have to be really, you know, acutely listening to the phase correlation of all the low end? Yeah, absolutely. To me, that's the most important factor. If it sounds the slightest bit off, then you're not enhancing anything. You're just making a mess of it. So it's not only a rhythmic thing for the drummer that you're trying to make sound good, but sonically, phase-wise, it sounds like somebody's swinging a ceiling fan over your speakers. It's just... Swinging a ceiling fan over your speakers. Well, so here's another question. When you're mixing and you're sort of in the mix spot, looking at the screen, do you always hear all the low end you need to hear right there in that spot? Or do you find that you have to get up and double check in a bunch of different spots in the room, for example, to really test it out and feel confident about it? Um, I'm never confident about anything I do until I take it to the car. And I'm getting pretty good at getting close in my room. But still to this day, that's always, for whatever reason, just within two seconds, I know if it's right or not in the car. I seem to remember that at one point you had a pretty insane car stereo, or maybe Matt told me that story, that you had like a tube system in your car for listening to mixes. Is that just urban folklore? No, I went haywire at one point where I had, you know, Dr. Dre's guy put a system together for me. (laughs) That's awesome, man. Tell us about that. (laughs) It was just cool, man, to to have the best sounding audio system I'd ever had. And you're just, there's a lot of driving that goes on in L.A., so... Listen to a lot of really good sounding music in that vehicle. That's great, man. I love it. With the dual tens in the trunk. But it was tuned really well. It wasn't just like one of these rattling systems that you see driving down the road. It was tuned. Yeah. Like I said, by Dre's guy. So it was just tight and perfect and deep. And you play a mix in that car and you thought you were, you know, <laughs> Serban or Spike or something. It, <laughs> That's great. That's great. What um so now how does that translate to a regular old car that most people are driving? Do you find that um it, it like, doesn't at all. So so you still need to listen on a crappy stereo to really know how it's translated. Yeah, that's important. Absolutely. A stock car radio because it runs off of the DC of the battery. So when it clips, when it's too much, it'll definitely let you know really early on. Yeah. 
Um, I remember a producer here in Nashville when I was interning telling me that same thing. I was like, oh man, I bet do you have the best car stereo ever? And he was like, no, no way. I always want to just get the stock stereo. When I get a new car, I just ask him to put in the cheapest stock stereo they got because I want to know exactly what my mixes sound like to everybody else. Yeah, and, and it's crazy nowadays because there is no standard cassette or CD. Like everybody's got a SD player or a phone Bluetooth sync or an eighth inch jack off their phone. So there's no real standard anymore. Yeah. Do you find that there's sort of a lowest common denominator that um, always craps out first and you try and pay attention to that? Or do you just really just make it sound good in your car and that's as far as you can go? Um, For whatever reason, if it's sounding good in my room and it plays back in the car without distorting, then I know I'm in a good spot by the time it gets to mastering. All right, cool. Um, Well, Chris, let's jump forward and start talking about some of the artists that you worked with. I know we're going to want to talk about Prince. You've got some pretty amazing stories to share about you, you know your experience with all that. And congratulations on being up for a Grammy nomination this year. That's fantastic, man. Will you tell us the story behind all that? Well, it's simple, man. It's uh, <laughs> just I was up working one night, hadn't slept, and I think they announced the Grammy nominations on the news. So the TV was just on in the background. They were like, Grammy nominations were announced this morning. And I'm like, oh, let me see. Because every year I just check the production categories just to see if friends are you know, nominated or it's stuff that I respect or uses references. So I checked. And lo and behold, category 69, number four, was Prince's Hit and Run Phase 2. That's fantastic. I saw my name, dude. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's my name. That's that's great, man. Congratulations on that. I'm sure you're extremely excited about that, and I hope you win it. Um, tell us a little bit about the backstory. You know, How did you end up working with Prince? What was, what was the start of that? Um, well, I was surfing gear sluts one day. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, a friend of mine that I did meet via the chat room on Gear Sluts was working with Prince and his gig was suspended for a week with his other producer. So after his week was up, Prince was like, do you mind coming back to Paisley with me? I need somebody to mix this material I've got. And he's like, I can't, but I know somebody who can. And he literally just put my name out there and I got a phone call the next day. What was that? Was it like a phone call from Prince himself or, you know? No, it was it was a manager reaching out yeah. and there wasn't a whole lot of detail. It was just like, can you come up and record or mix? And I'm like, of course I can. What do I need to bring? <laughs> so I imagine I imagine myself in that situation and I, I can see myself being overly excited and saying a whole bunch of stupid stuff on the phone. Did you have to go through that or were you just smooth the whole time? Yeah, I was pretty smooth until... Until I got there. I played it cool until I got there. And then I did lose it a little bit. Yeah. It's naturally, you know, it's, this is, you got to understand from childhood, my compasses musically were Prince and Michael Jackson. And it's like everything that I've done as a musician or as a songwriter or as an engineer, it's like, that's the DNA of where I start. That's awesome, man. So to finally be in the same room as was just like, Okay, this is a little too much. <laughs> I'm seeing how these things are happening that I only imagined in my head. 
So it was very cool to see it firsthand. How do you compensate for, you know, that nervousness and, you know, do you just go ahead and do some dumb stuff or do you, do you have a, a way of sort of handling that so that you. With him, he was used to it everywhere he went in life. People were goo goo guide about his presence in the room. Yeah. So he had a way of dissipating that. That's awesome, man. Well, so, all right, I'm going to guess that, you know, you got down to work. And then do you remember having a sense after you did some work together that moment had passed and now you're just sort of, you've got a working relationship and everybody's relaxed? It depends. Every day was different and you could never expect yesterday to be tomorrow. (laughs) I like that, man. Yeah, it was a lot of of riddles to figure out, a lot of roadblocks. You just basically had to be that guy. Like when we were talking about interns, you got to figure it out. You, you're the man to make it happen. And if you can't figure it out, then there will very quickly be somebody here to replace you. So, um, can you share any stories with us about, you know, the time where you almost plug the L co into the DL? Um, there were a handful of those kind of things, but at the end of the day, I was still trying to make something happen. And if I couldn't figure it out, I'd have a B plan quickly ready. Right. There was no tech staff. There were no assistants. It was literally me as the entire audio facility manager, engineer. Anything that had to happen recording-wise, I had to figure out. Wow. And that's kind of hard to do in a facility the size of record plant. Well, I've heard stories, um, so I'll, I'll ask questions that are sort of from that perspective, and you can steer us in the right direction. But for example, I've heard stories that Prince is likely to want to do a session or be inspired to do one. And the people that are involved might get a call, you know, it might be kind of last minute and it's like, meet you at the studio in 20 minutes. Is it really like that? Do you have any, anything you can share about your experience about um, sort of being asked to do something and throw it all together really quickly? Absolutely. That was every day. That was pretty much every day. And the hotel was two miles from Paisley. So you get the phone call, and you'd head over and you'd sit at the gate and wait for the gate to open. And then you never knew if it was going to be, let's call it a quick 10-hour block <laughs> or if it was going to be a couple of days. Wow. And you just, you know, you came fed, always eating, making sure that you were energized to, to be able to take a marathon. Yeah. And some of these stories I heard from um, another friend that I, I think I knew who had auditioned for Prince once in the past. And he said that he auditioned to do some mixing and he was brought into the room and he said, here's 80 songs. And he had like two days to mix them. And that was sort of the audition. Did you have to do a lot of fast mixing? Was there any of that kind of stuff for you? A lot of times the song would be up from the production and we literally finished it because it was still, the faders were still up. Mm-hmm. The routing was still made. It was just, okay, now the song's recorded. Now let's print it to two track. So that's a lot of what happened. It wasn't a whole lot of let's bring the reel up and remix. You right, know? right. Okay, so you would really start an idea from the ground up and, and just complete it. Yeah, you didn't like to go back. It's kind of like catching a lightning bolt or a fly or fly. Yeah. You want to capture it in the bottle while it's still there. Let's, let's go with lightning bolt. Lightning bolt's cooler, man. We'll go with lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds dangerous. Yeah, but you're the one who caught it. I tried. Well, that's cool, dude. Um, so uh, I think I feel like another story I heard was that while you might have been fueled up on food, Prince might have only needed to eat uh, like from a bowl of hard candies or something. Like he just uh, had some kind of incredible studio stamina. Well, there are a lot of times where you'd 
start a process and then let's say some editing had to happen or some kind of production thing needed to happen where he could leave and then come back. Mm -hmm. Or if it's the kind of thing where we track an instrumental and then I prep it so that he could do his vocals and then I could leave. So it wasn't all the time marathon, marathon, but there were times where we could take breaks. Yeah, well, that's great. I thought uh, another picture of what the studio was like that I remember hearing was it was sort of painted like this environment where maybe he could sit in the control room chair, but there was a mic close by for singing. You could easily grab a guitar. It was very, it was designed to be instantly creative. Is that accurate as well? Can you describe what he liked as a creative environment? Yeah, it was like having a stage mic'd up. You know, like a band's going to come rehearse. You've got the drum kit, you've got a bass line, you've got the guitar amps, you've got an extra DI in case something needs to go direct. You've got the synths all hardwired, the drum machine. Like everything's just kind of hardwired to the console to be routed straight to tape. So you could walk around and pick up any instrument and just blow your mind. <laughs> Were you guys always recording to analog tape? Generally, yes. So that was the other aspect is finding blank tape and not feeling bad for having to record over something that was on tape. Yeah. Like like reusing tape was like always a terrifying thing to me. It's like, what? Would you guys call Steve Albini over in Chicago and ask him if he had any tape? <laughs> no, I did not do that. <laughs> but I did go on a couple of missions trying to find the particular formula that we like to use. Um, I'm guessing that you had to go outside of Chanhassen. Yeah, it was always ordered from outside of the area. Do you ever get out into Minneapolis and see any other music while you were there? Probably not, right? Just a handful of times. There were times where he'd want to go see a show himself. Mm -hmm. So we'd hop in a car and go to a show. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, you know, those are special memories. Um, I know you got to play with him on stage. You guys played music together. Um, how did that come about? I was tuning his guitar, like the very famous Telecaster that he plays for an overdub that he was getting ready to do. And then he could sort of hear that I could play a little. So after he did the overdub, he's like, I'm getting ready to, go to rehearse with the band. Do you want to come jam with us? And I was like, of course I do. Sure. You know, I thought it was just a stress relief from the studio. It's like, let's go hang out for a minute and chill. So I'd already recorded this song, so I knew it inside and out. So I got a guitar on, I plugged into an amp, and as I played along with the band during rehearsal, he's like, after we ran it a couple of times, we went to go play ping pong, because <laughs> that was another time to just sort of chill. And it was the first time he played me. Like, I always avoided playing him in ping pong because he was so good at it, and he just mutilate people. <laughs> so for whatever reason, he was, this was the time for me and my beatdown. <laughs> He's serving me, and it's super quick. Like, you don't see the ball, and all of a sudden, it's like pew, pew, pew. And then right before he serves one, he goes, so what are you wearing on Kimmel? And then he serves the ball, and I'm like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I knew that the potential of me playing on TV with him was was reality. That's great, man. That's hilarious. What an awesome story. I, there's no way in hell I could have ever even thought to have asked you for a story about playing ping pong with Prince. <laughs> I didn't even know that he played ping pong. That's, that's, you know. Yeah, he was so good at it. That's the perfect studio game, too. We used to do that at Alex the Great. I used to play with Robin and Brad, and it was like the, the greatest stress relief during a session. Yeah. And, and Robin would do that to me, too, the little speedy serve that I could never get. Well, that's really cool, man. So then you went out and played the show. 
A- any other stories from the experience of getting up on the stage and playing? Were you relaxed about it? Were you nervous? I mean, it's a TV performance, so you kind of don't want to mess it up. Yeah, I wasn't nervous as far as knowing the song. I was more nervous, just the typical nervousness you had around being around him. Just you wanted to make sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing, that things were patched right. I don't know. I kind of became this audio ambassador while I was working for him. So it wasn't just about the records and mixing in studio. It turned into this whole, what's wrong? Like, how do we make the monitor guy pay more attention or like, you right. know, whatever the little issues might be or based around sound. I was just the go-to guy to take care yeah, you're of the it. boots on the ground. Exactly. So just, just just dealing with that kind of stuff before and after the show kind of took a little bit of the, the fame out of it for the right, day. Right. Like, I definitely wasn't the star, you know, played my little 15 minutes and then back, right back into the real world. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. I, I guess a kind of a similar experience because a band that I worked with, um, played a TV performance and same thing. They asked me to like kind of oversee all the tech stuff. And I I ended up sort of um, following the band's lead, but overstepping the bounds and kind of screwing up the, the, you know, the sound for the TV inadvertently where I found I should have left it alone. Did you run into that at all? Did you find that you were able to um, oversee it or did you just sort of glance at it and step back and let them do their thing? How did you best handle that situation? Um, luckily on that particular show, Mac Boris was one of the executive producers for the music segment on Kimmel. He played bass himself. So it was like having an ally on both sides. And, uh, he definitely helped that situation. (laughs) That's awesome. Cause it was, you know, it was high, high stress cooker. You basically you perform and you have a very minimal amount of time before that has to be up in the air to air on the East coast. So it's a pressure cooker right after the performance is to get a remix done if you're going to remix. A lot of times you just play it, and the way that it went down is the way it airs. But yeah. you know, Prince liked to have it as good as he could get it, so we put a little extra time into it, make sure that it was the way he wanted it. Oh, that's cool. Mac Burris is a cool dude, man. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great that he's got that gig. Well, so um, let, let me dig into some more questions about kind of making records together. What was one of the first experiences that you had where you're working with Prince in the studio and you realized you're like, there was some indication that you've got the gig? Was there something that happened where he gave you a, like a, a head nod or like a pat on the back or anything like that? And you're like, <laughs> all right, cool. I made it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of that. You were pretty much on your toes the whole time. There, you know, there were a few times, like, for example, the Kimmel performance was his way of saying thank you to me. Yeah. You know, and it, he didn't have to do that. There's no reason he, why would he, you know, <laughs> there's an ample amount of awesome guitarists in the band already. Why would he let me do that? Yeah, that's cool. So I think that was his way of just being cool, that's... saying, you know, here you go. So there were a few times like that where I got that from him. But you were, like I said, you're pretty much thrown right back into the real world immediately. That's great, man. Well, so, all right, well, let's dig into some of the sounds and stuff like that. Um, You know, flipping through and listening to Hit and Run, um, the drum sound, uh, you know, that kind of funky tight sound of, uh, I think it was 2Y2D. Too Young to Dare. Yeah, Too Young to Dare, right. So was that t- talk to us about recording that track if, as much as you can remember and getting that kind of tight sound and just getting the groove in the pocket so right on. You know, we've recorded so many songs, it's hard to even 
remember from song to song. I mean, literally, you would maybe do two or three songs a day when it was really cooking. Well, so are you guys recording a lot of material that we would have never even heard, or was it... Um... Absolutely. I would have said that in the year that I was there, there are about six albums worth of material, and only three of them have been released. Wow. Wow, that's intense, man. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you were able to witness the process of sorting through and keeping the best stuff, or was that all sort of done outside of the studio after you had finished it? No, that's after it's on the hard drive for the two track master it goes into the vault never to be spoken of again wow <laughs> unless wow. it was brought back to your table wow interesting um well now what about some typical things that you would address doing a drum recording with prince typically you know the kit was already mic'd up that was one of the first tasks i had actually when i got to the studio the very first day i didn't meet him he called on the phone and he was like welcome Glad to have you. And he's like, I want to play some drums, so why don't you go set the mics around the kit and we'll record it to him with drums. I'm like, cool. Do you want analog or do you want digital? Pro Tools. I'm literally thrown into this situation. I have no idea what I'm doing. So he's like, um, let's go with analog. So here I am in this room. I don't know where the mics are. I don't know where the cables are. I don't know how to get the patch bay to the tape machine versus the DAW. Like all this stuff is so brand new to me. Do you remember how to align a tape machine at that point? Yeah, I still remember that. What kind of machine were you guys cutting to? Studer A827. Yeah. I figured that out. It took about an hour to mic up the kit, document all the patches, and then check the pre's, get it to tape. And then I get a phone call, and it's him again. He's like, now that I think about it, I think I want to go to Pro Tools. <laughs> I'm like, cool, no problem. So right off the bat, I'm being tested. Right, totally. And I'm like, I figure it out. I get Pro Tools up and running. And he goes, now that I think about it, I think analog's a little more warmer. Let's go back to analog. <laughs> so it's like, I've yet to meet him and I'm already doing all this stuff. It's cool. It's like, all right, I'm here for a reason. Let's let's do this. It's funny because you knew what that was too. You probably, absolutely, you totally knew I, that he was just finding out if you were willing to do those things. I was just privy to the Kevin Smith video on YouTube. I don't know. Tell us about that one. You should you should just Google it. Kevin Smith and Prince and watch that and you'll totally know what I'm talking about. But I just watched that before getting there. So I was already privy to some of the obstacles, the myths that you'd heard, <laughs> riddles, roadblocks, all that kind of stuff. I was kind of prepped for that mentally. So at the end of that day, he calls again. He's like, uh, I think we'll call it for today. <laughs> so he never even came down and played. And then I come in the next day and he finally shows up in the room and I stayed for almost a year. Wow. Well, I mean, it's pretty smart, too, because, I mean, he probably knew that he had two choices. One was to get you familiar with the studio, and the other was to sit around in the studio all day waiting and watching you get yourself familiar with the studio, you know? Right. <laughs> He's like, might as well just let you get familiar with it on your own, so when I come in, you actually already know it. Yeah. It's a difficult situation. There are a lot of younger engineers might have known how to get signal flow to Pro Tools, but the fact that I had to know how to do Pro Tools and analog, I think my age kind of helped in that regard. Absolutely. And then having to synchronize the two and a lot oh, of man, you were, old methods. You were syncing up the Studer to the Pro Tools and trying to get them in sync? Yeah, because what, what good would that do if you ran out of 
22 tracks and all of a sudden you want three more things overdubbed. Ah, good point, man. See, I would have lost the gig on day one. <laughs> no, I was always trying to think ahead of the game because you never knew and you would never be told generally. But when it needed to happen, you had to quickly be ready for it. Yeah, I would have been like, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Prince. Let us uh, let me just show you how we can draw up a grid on the whiteboard. And we'll just plan out our eight tracks. See, you're already talking too much. <laughs> just, just too much output already. That's great, man. I love it, dude. Those are great, great stories. Uh, very cool to hear. Do you remember what kind of mics you decided to use on the drums, whether you swapped them out the next day or not? I don't know. Um, nothing too special. Honestly, everything was really stock, instruments and mics-wise. D12 on the kick, 57s on snares, 421s on toms, 452s on hi-hats, cymbals, overheads were Neumann U67s. Nice. Basic standard stuff. Right. Maybe not for every home studio, but great to hear the, the details on those, though. I think people appreciate that. Oh, this is kind of a dumb question I wrote down. I just I wrote down what made Prince different from other artists. I don't know. Is that a question that you could even answer? Absolutely. It's um, I think to me, it's the weirdest yet ultimate gig because there will never be another gig like it in the world. Yeah. The fact that he was so eccentric and had his way of doing things. Once you were in the gates of Paisley, it was a different world. It wasn't you weren't on planet Earth. It was like you're walking into uh, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory kind wow. of thing. It was wow. like, okay, time doesn't mean anything. You barely had internet access. It was just like you were in a, just a, a different world. That's fascinating. And the rules changed. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like one of the perspectives I got about Prince was that he was just incredibly attentive to his own art. It just sounds like both musically and in the business aspect, he was just very, you know, I mean, he's sort of famous for some of the record deals that happened in the past and stuff like that. Do you have anything you want to say about just that kind of attentiveness to both the art and the the business of it all? Yeah, it's just kind of like being a one-stop shop. You deal with the song lyric, you deal with the instrumental track, you deal with the programming of the synths or the drum machine, like whatever it is, he just did it all. And you were just kind of there to document and capture. And then as soon as the music was done, he was on to the artwork or the video or how this is going to look live, what the band's going to do. It was like he was in charge of all of that. He was really getting into the internet around 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. So you were for the first time seeing him active on Twitter and his tweets are hilarious and Instagram and the music was coming out. Like he teased people by literally putting the song out the night that he recorded it. That's, so that's interesting. If you were a fan, you had to stay on top of it. You want to make sure you got everything. What about the creative process? So what do you feel like you saw about how a song went from his head to the first things that would happen to a final version of it? For me, it was just seeing him concentrate before a take. It had this thing of like maybe five seconds or 10 seconds of just silence. And then he point or not his head. And then perfection came out <laughs> and it was very concentrated. And it was just seeing him play piano or keys, for example, I've never seen anybody so attentive of the release of the note. That rest has a value. Yeah. <laughs> and he's very precise about the values between notes. It's just seeing somebody that attentive to detail was insane. 
I imagine that that attentiveness to the rest note is part of what makes the pocket of absolutely Prince so right absolutely on. it was it uh, the thing that I learned the most while I was there was how to arrange music. The funny thing is, is it's the simplest little thing that I kind of, for whatever reason, didn't put two and two together. But if you've got an instrument playing and a vocal melody goes there, then that, that other instrument needs to be muted. So <laughs> it's not on top of this other thing. And it was just a puzzle that kind of went together. And you didn't have things automating from section to section. It was like the fader sat there and the song told the story without you making any moves. Oh, that's pretty wild. Would you see Prince start out with sort of strumming a guitar and kind of thinking it out loud? Or uh, like, what's the first thing that would happen when a song's getting created? It already it already existed in his head or it already existed in the rehearsal space, you think, before coming into the studio? Yeah, I don't feel like there was a whole lot of, let me figure something out. There wasn't a whole lot of that. He was very purposeful about, he'd show up and then either play drums or program a beat and then just layer. And he knew, he knew everything. He knew everything that was going to go down. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, all right. So let me uh, let me ask a couple other things. Let's let's get into the mixing just a little bit because you certainly did do a lot of mixing, even if it was at the finish of each track. Um, what? Uh, well, to begin with, did you feel like your role was kind of balance the mix, and then you get feedback and let's do this and let's do that, or was it kind of did you have to step out of the way a lot and just uh, make room for Prince, for example, to push some faders around. What sort of process worked well for you guys? <laughs> it depends on if we were on the console or if we were completely in the box. Yeah. If it was a console, then he was very much so hands-on. I'd start something and then he'd do what he needed to do to make it sound like he wanted it to sound. And then I'd either print that or then take that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. If it was in the box, it was pretty much just a list of things that needed to be done. It's almost like having a uh, a robot on the side where he could sit in the producer's seat and just say something and it would happen. It's fascinating, though. You, you just said, you know, you'd take it a little further. Does that mean that there was a trust factor that you guys arrived at where he might? Sometimes. Sometimes it was there. Sometimes it wasn't. <laughs> Depends on the day. That's great. Um, let's let me ask you about these kind of things. So, low end uh, relationships of kick drum and bass, and you know where it sits just right in a mix. Were there times where he was guiding you towards something, and at you know at first it wasn't where you would have put it, but then when you listen to it, you got it. Or did you, did you guys kind of always? Do you feel like where it went was always where you thinking it might need to go as well? No, not at all. Put it this way. I could sit in a room for three hours and mix my heart out and he could come in the room and 15 minutes later, it would sound like a Prince record. That's amazing. No matter what I did to make it sound what I thought a Prince record should sound like, he had a way of very quickly making it sound like his. And I don't know if it's something that is a presence that enters the room that makes you nervous and make you make different decisions, or if that's just, I can't explain that to this day. It's just baffling how that happened so quickly with him. Uh, that's wild, man. Uh, what were some things that he might have done to the vocals, for example, that um, was eye-opening to you? 
him singing them period <laughs> like that was the one of the biggest highlights for me was the first time i pulled up a fader and it was his vocal solo like his goose bumpy um how about things like dumb tech stuff like settings on the mic and compression did you find that you would set things and it turns out that your settings were right and it was his voice on the mic or did you have to uh, do things quite differently than you expected no it was just setting up where it was enough gain and not clipping but not quiet definitely like to print everything loud was his the sort of voice that would appreciate plenty of compression or not so much how would you describe that not at all he was old school when it comes to recording he's been doing it since the 70s so he knows how to use the mic as far as when you get loud, you back up a little bit, you quiet, you're on nice. it. He had a magical instrument in his voice. So a little bit of compression is about it. Nothing nothing, nothing fancy going on there other than what's coming out of his mouth. Any uh, choice compressor that you're, you're allowed to talk about? Tape. Nice. It's just a real simple chain, mic, mic pre. Nice. You got to realize that the tape is doing a bit of the saturating and the compression. Yeah. Absolutely. And the funny thing about recording to tape is you don't get to hear that until you've already recorded it. Then <laughs> right. you play it back and then you're like, oh, there it is, you know, which yeah. is kind of a nice feeling about listening back to tape playback. It's always like it's one better, one louder. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've been doing it long enough, you know how to push or how far you can push it before it just turns into obliteration. Do you remember uh, what uh, brand of tape you really liked working with at the time? Uh, GP9 was one that could get loud enough. <laughs> loud enough. The, it, generally what the machine was calibrated for. Okay. That was most of the reels. Cool, man. All right, well, so now let's talk about uh, the master bus for a second. What kind of master bus treatment did you like to do? Sometimes the the 4K's output, it was an 8K, but same compressor as a 4000, mm -hmm. the SSL. Sometimes that would be on, sometimes it wouldn't. And... If it couldn't happen on the faders and the EQs, it didn't happen any other way. Interesting. So it wasn't like you, you guys didn't have to pull out any kind of fancy two-mix compressors or outboard stuff. It was just like the sound was already ripe by the time it's hitting the two-bus and a little bit more on the two-track. Would you print a two-track tape or was it typically printing into the computer? Printing back to the computer or, you know, two-track hard disk. It was... Always, let's say we were coming off Pro Tools, then the plugins would be doing whatever they needed to be doing in addition to the compression and EQ on the console and maybe some outboard delays and effects, reverbs. Real basic, nothing nothing fancy. That was the key. It was just like simple and not leaving your fingerprint behind. If you could tell you did something, then that was bad. Interesting. Wow. So it really needed to come from the performance, from the musician and, and the arrangement. Yeah, a lot of it. Well, so like, I imagine what you didn't do from based on what you described is you didn't, you know, take a signal, route it out of the console, hit some guitar pedals, bring it back into a reverb, bounce it off tape and like create some new wild indie rock sound. That seemed to never happen, huh? Typically, the sound was what it needed to be when it was recorded, because if you manipulated it too much, then it wasn't what was the original intent. What kind of ways did you like to mic up Prince's guitar amp? One of my favorite ways was to put just a 57 on the front and then there's a ribbon that I put on the back and then lining those up in phase with the little toolbox. On the back of the cabinet. So is this an open back guitar amp? Yeah. And that was one of 
both of our favorite tones the whole time I was there. He was really happy with it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so Rockstars, that is, if you're not picturing it, you know, uh, an open back guitar combo, you've got the front of the speaker, but if you looked at the back of the amp, you'd see the back of the speaker through the metal basket as well. And you can actually mic the front of the speaker and you can put a mic in the back. You just have to get them in phase and maybe like um, Chris is suggesting, align the delay timing of one or the other so that they lock back up in phase. Yeah. And I, I will say generally that doesn't always work. So you still have to use your judgment on that. Um, but this was a really bright tone. So I was trying to get as much beef and low end right. girth out right. of it. So rear miking helped in that scenario a little bit. Yeah. The, the double mic thing like that brings out a lot more low mids, doesn't it? It certainly did in this case. What have I not asked you about that you'd like to tell us about in that process, working with Prince, maybe um, finishing up Hit and Run, even, you know, the one that's taking you to the Grammys this weekend? That was unique because I'd worked on the record so long ago, and then it finally came out. And to see my name on the record was enough. It was just like, oh, wow, I got credited in my career. That's not happened all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a lot of times where you might have gotten credit, but then you didn't get paid. Yeah. So it's it was a really gratifying thing to have worked on a Prince record, been paid for it, and got credited for it. Like, that was enough. That was like, okay, well, <laughs> not a lot of people can say that. And then when the nomination happened, it was just bittersweet cherry on top. Nice. But um, finishing the record was... It's to put it this way, you never knew you were finished for the record because you recorded so many songs, you just had no idea if well, is this going on this project or a different project or is this for a different artist? So you just constantly output and you never knew that you were done with a record or an album. I know it's kind of wild the way the process works sometimes, especially with records that take a longer cycle. You know, by the time this big uh, moment happens, you're deep into another project already, um, which kind of brings us forward to the present and to your studio in L.A. Can you tell us about um, your place now and, and what kind of stuff you're into and uh, what's going on with you at your studio? Yeah, I started the Archive Studio back in 2007, and it's gone through a few metamorph—a few, what's the word? Metamorphoses? Thank you. It's gone through a few changes along the way. I started with an SSL 4K myself and Pro Tools Rig and tons of outboard. And eventually that just got to the point where it was a maintenance and energy hog. And I eventually got rid of it. And then the search for finding something that I enjoyed working on and got similar results was another mission that I'm finally getting closer to where I like it. Nice. And when I was visiting you out there, you're, I believe you're in Encino, right? Yeah, I remember seeing a studio that you had that was a really cool place. It was sort of like a pool house, I think, studio. Um, but I don't think you're there anymore. And I wondered if you wanted to share the story about the uh, the end of that studio experience, or at least the story that I heard about the storm rolling through. Yeah, well, L.A., generally, it doesn't rain very often. Tony, Tony, Tony said it best. Nice. But for whatever reason, that changed. And there was a 400-year-old uh, white oak tree looming above the studio. 
and it had a rotted rooting system. So after about six hours of rain, it started to become unhinged and it fell on the studio. It just crushed it, didn't it? It punctured a hole in the ceiling. A major limb off of it punctured a hole in the ceiling. And if that was all that had happened, that damage could have been repaired pretty minimally. But it was the following six hours of rain that then followed the path of the branch into the studio. Wow. So that's that's intense, man. If you imagine all of the uh, lighting fixtures and air conditioning vents just turning into faucets. Oh, God. So, Rockstars, I only bring that up not to just uh, make Chris remember how terrible it was, but just to kind of uh, encourage you that, um, I don't know, I'm not, what, what is my encouragement there? The encouragement is... <laughs> to have insurance? Yeah, yeah to have insurance <laughs> and to when you think things might be kind of going bad for you in that moment, just remember at least a tree didn't <laughs> fall on your studio in the middle of it, you know? Tell us about your studio that you've got now and where you are. So I'm not even a block away from the last studio, and it's set up as Soul 7 Post. It's basically a, a mixed stage for film in the A control room, and then mm-hmm. there's a live room that sounds awesome, big drums, super spacious sounding, and then there's a really tight booth and a B room That's that has cool, a rig man. in it that I use. and. Yeah, my studio is pretty much based around a custom console that was designed with uh, overstayer recording equipment. Oh, cool. This is uh, Jeff Terza's gear? Yeah. So Tell us all. Do tell. So he's got a box now. It's called the Modular Channel. And I more or less just have a custom version of that. But it's, it's a front end, line amp, filters with resonance, a few bands of EQ, a VCA-based compressor and three different forms of saturation all into a, a local matrix mixer okay. that you can blend and then output. And I have four stereo channels of that and four monos on the way. Nice. And so this is your console. So basically you're summing outputs of Pro Tools into this console and adding to your sound? Yeah, a lot of times I'll treat each recording stem, let's call it, like I'm mastering. So I'll split kick, snare, maybe whatever parts of the drum kit that I want, bass, guitar, keys, vocals. I'll stem them out, and then I'll mix as if I'm mixing on a traditional analog desk. And then I'll print those back into Pro Tools if I want to not have to deal with recalling. Um, Let me ask you this question, hypothetically coming from the rock stars. Uh, If somebody's hearing that and they're going, oh man, you know, if I've got a mixer, should I take my Pro Tools out and be mixing on the mixer instead of in the box? What would you say to somebody, you know, sort of an early stage of of this stuff? Like, do you feel like uh, if they have a Mackie mixer or some sort of a lower end mixer, is it still valid to go out and mix through it that way? Um, It depends on the quality of the mixer. When you say Mackie, it doesn't necessarily mean it's horrible. Um, there was a great failure record that was recorded with blackface eight ats and a Mackie. So nice. It can be done. Um, I think you learn a lot in the process. I think for me, it's about sonics and subtleties and nuance. It's something that, you know, we can get in a whole big debate here over digital versus analog or hardware versus software. But I just have my preferences because I started a certain way. And then I just know that when I do it, on this piece, I can't get the same results when I try it on this. Right. So if I'm if I'm confined to working with this, there's other things I have to do to compensate for what it's lacking. Right. 
and it's just a longer process and it's not as fun because it's like flight simulation all of a sudden <laughs> as opposed to flying. It's just different. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean that for anyone else. Like this is a debatable topic that will go on and on till the end of time, I'm sure. But just for me, I, I have my preferences and it's been built into this desk and I cannot get the sound <laughs> of that in the box. So if I could, I would. Well, I, I think the takeaway is just simply, if you can get a sound you're going for at any stage of the recording and or mixing and get there instantly without having to do 10 steps in order to create it, just use the instant version, whatever it is, you know. And that's kind of, I guess, mentally what I was thinking when we were designing these, when I was co-steering the ship with Jeff, he was doing all the hardcore stuff. I just had my things that I wanted. And kind of an inspiration was the fact that you could do so much with just one box. Hmm. In a typical studio, you might need a a compressor, like a distressor or 1073 or GML, whatever EQ you want to use. And then you'd run that into a SANS amp and then you'd bring it up on four channels on the console and then it made this cool sound. Well, I have that all in one box without patching. So nice. that was kind of the inspiration behind it. Well, if you guys can just design that where I can print it up on my 3D printer one day, that'd be great. Um, well, so you're getting ready to finish your own project as well, or, or to dive into it. You want to talk about your record that's coming up, what you're getting into this year? Sure. It's um, I've been writing songs for years, but I've never released something as an artist. I've, I've co-written with other artists and had songs out, but this is me taking a leap, doing my own project as a producer, musician, songwriter. I've partnered with someone and found a really unique way of releasing it via a television or documentary movie style method. That's right. Very cool, man. So I have that. Well, we're excited to hear it and to see that. What are you going to do musically on this? Are you going to be playing with a band? Are you going to try and play a lot of stuff yourself? Um, A lot of stuff will be played by me, and then I'll have a handful of musicians I really respect and like come in and jam and overdub. And Well, very cool, man. Well, Rockstars, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in just a moment for the jam session. Before we do, I want to remind you that you can find links to what we're talking about here with Chris at the show notes, which are at recordingstudiorockstars.com. Use the magnifying glass, search for Chris. Or if you're on your iPhone podcast app, you can just kind of click through and then you'll see the show notes right there with this episode. If you enjoyed the music on the podcast, that's actually my original music. So I'll drop in a pitch for that. You can find that music at skadooshmusic.com, S-K-A-D-O-O-S-H. And if you want to get yourself a t-shirt, Chris, I should send you a t-shirt, man. If you want to let the world know you're a rock star, go to rsrockstars.com slash t-shirt and get yourself a t-shirt. Check them out. Rockstars, we'll see you in a minute for the jam session. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, rock stars, it's Lid Sean. We're back with Recording Studio Rockstars. My guest today is Chris James. We're about to jump into the jam session. Chris, are you ready to jam? Let's go. All right, dude. When you started out in recording and music, what was holding you back? Trying to do what I learned in Mix Magazine or reading some forum online and thinking that I had to do everything like my peers did. Yeah, that you see that somebody else did something and that's the only way to do it. What'd you discover instead? That I had to find a way to do it myself with my resources and still make it as excellent as I could. Because you're, you know, you're not always going to have access to the most expensive mics and pre's and converters. So not letting that be the thing to keep you from creating music in the first place. Yeah, it's too bad, man, because if you had had access to all that stuff, you know, who knows, maybe you could have, you know, I don't know, worked with Prince one day or something like that. <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> um, how about sharing some of the best advice that you remember receiving in, uh, you know, music, recording, life? Best advice? Hmm. What about from Prince? He must have shared some great advice with you. Okay. I mean, the, for, for me, with him... I would say the most that I learned from Prince was how to arrange getting production to sit where you wanted it without automation. We already talked about you that. You talked but, about that, but get into the details if you want. That's it. That's just the simplest part of it. It's just now when I get a multi-track production from a client that may not be as experienced and things are all over the place, sometimes I just chop and mute and edit and make it digestible. And sometimes that's all it takes. Like there'll be something cluttering a vocal line and all you have to do is just mute something that's cluttering it or, you know, edit it so that it still sounds natural as if the musician played it that way, but just nip and tuck where you can. Right. Whereas I think a first thing we try and do when we're recording and mixes, mixing is we try and just find some perfect balance level to include everything, right? And then you get to the end and you're like, why does this just have no life to it? Yeah, it just depends on production styles. I mean, I know people that are complete polar opposites of that, where this is eight layers of one sound and it's just daunting. And But they have their <laughs> rough that they're so in love with that you have to pretty much keep keep it there. And, you know, just, they come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. So there's, sometimes there's people that really want simple and natural and organic. And then there's other people that want synthetic and a lot of automation, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And you just got to be ready to record the tape, record the Pro Tools, record the tape, record the Pro Tools and go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, now how about sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that our rock stars could use today on their next session? Um, as far as a recording tip, I would say a really cool one to have is to have a separate computer recording everything all the time. So you have your main session that you might have going on. And in between takes, the singer is doing some incredible thing. And then when you press record, they never quite do it again. Well, if you had a wild recording just catching it all, then you could always just go back and snip that one little note or syllable or whatever that you when you get to editing, you might need. That's cool. I like that. Would you use, would you have like a dedicated mic that's just feeding that second rig or no, this- I, I use this plugin. It's called Audario IO. And what you can do with it is put it on your bus of your main DAW mm-hmm. and it wirelessly sends that signal to another computer and you just have that computer and record the whole time. Very cool. So if your DAW is in input or in record ready, even if you weren't rolling Pro Tools at that time, you still could capture that that thing that just happened and it would have the sound that you're used to hearing. Absolutely. As part of your mix. Yeah, it's the same yeah, as long as you don't, let's let's say, have a bunch of plugins that you're monitoring with while you're tracking. If you're just tracking straight off your mic, then you're good. That's really cool. I appreciate that you shared the idea, but then I really appreciate that you gave us an actual inside, like, you know, here's a plugin you can use to make this happen. All right. And another hack that I had was, <laughs> if you want to call it that, is to put your screens to sleep every now and again and actually listen to what you're doing. Yeah doing instead of watching it. Right. Because your brain is so caught up in the visual experience that you probably don't even have any brain power left to actually listen. Sometimes it gets that way. Um, Massey used to make an awesome RTAS TDM. There's a plugin called Listen and you just, it didn't route audio through it. It was just a button you pressed and it would turn your screens black. That's the one. I couldn't remember. I remember hearing about that, but I didn't know who did it. And that was Massey, um, who has has done all my great plugins. Unfortunately, I don't believe there's an AAX version of it yet, or VST, but if you press Shift-Control and the power button on your laptop, if you're using a laptop, then that temporarily shuts your screens off. Here's another one that I'm just inventing right now. If you just took a, a browser and had like a black screen on a browser tab and put that in full screen mode, I think you can, I think there's tabs that will sort of switch your desktop. That would very much so work as well, sir. That would be a good way to do it. Maybe you could put a photo of yourself up there. That, that might distract <laughs> you. Like, look how handsome he is. We, we, we might start to think about other things. Or if you like yourself too much, you might approve a mix that doesn't, isn't ready to go out the door. So my secret sauce is to add a little bit of noise when you're working in the box. And I know Waves have their plugins where if you press the analog button, it just kind of hisses. But I, I like to be in control of that noise. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I'll just add my own in. You know, I remember that about you. I remember many years ago, you were telling me about how the dither was so important in a Pro Tools mix in a session. And I think you even told me that you had your own dither on CD that you could import onto a track and mix it in that way. Yeah, I, I still use the Crane Song one every now and again. It's it's a cool sounding dither when you need it. Can you can you explain that a little better to somebody? Because I think when somebody hears that, they're like, "What you mean? Like really? Like I'm I have my mix and it's going over the top of it the whole time?" Yeah, because if you think about when you're overdubbing tracks, and let's say that the track doesn't record in the bridge. So all of a sudden, if that source had noise, it just completely goes away and it feels like a vacuum in space. It's it's a very unnatural, jarring sound. So if you just leave a little bit of pilot hiss underneath everything, and I'm talking like 
down 60 dB or whatever, like super quiet. You can barely sense it with headphones on. That sometimes is all it needs for when your reverb tapers go away and then they turn into hiss as opposed to turn into just digital black. Yeah, so it's almost psychological. Yeah, it's probably me working on a bunch of analog hardware and tape that I enjoy that experience a little bit. And the fact that you can control it digitally because you don't have to be stuck with what the gear noise is. You can just, it's almost like Photoshop, just being able to buff the edges a little bit of reverbs and edits. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of fade files in sessions now. So it kind of helps that whole thing. Buff the edges, rock stars, buff the edges. All right. So how about um, sharing a favorite hardware tool or something physical, even if it's not a piece of recording gear that you like to have on sessions? It just always seems to make sessions better. Um, I love my headphones. Like I have a pair of Bayer DT 880 Pros that I love. Oh, yours is one better than mine. Mine's only the 770s. But something about, at least if I'm tracking, I can get a sense for what that feels like. I really enjoy, obviously, playing a mix before printing through it. Yeah. Other than the overstayers, that's probably my the other thing I can't do a session without. Um, do you find yourself... So so you're tracking in, in your studio or in other studios, but you still pop on the headphones because it allows you to just listen really, really acutely to what's going on? Yes, correct. I find that my headphones have saved my ass many times as far as discovering that there were noises or sputters or something going on with it, you know a piece of gear or a microphone that might've gotten overlooked in the speakers, especially when you got bands in the room and it's noisy, it's not perfectly quiet. Right. It's just the little lip smack on a vocal or the piano hammers lifting off the strings, whatever little nuances that you might've missed in an, in an active control room. All right, Chris. So now how about sharing with us a favorite software tool or something cool that you just want to let people know about? Um, you'd have to be on Pro Tools for this one, but Lo-Fi, that's an indispensable tool for me. And when I use other DAWs, I miss it. Very cool. So Lo-Fi Rockstars come stock with Pro Tools, I believe. So you should have it. What are some uses? I like to put the distortion on point one. It's the lowest, lowest setting that you can use. And it adds the cleanest third harmonic of any software I've ever seen. So it makes things instantly sound louder without being compressed. It doesn't really sound distorted or saturated. It just gets louder. Fascinating. Um, What are some examples of stuff you might put it on to try it out? Everything. (laughs) Everything. All right, there you go. Try it on everything, Rockstars. If you're in the middle of a mix and you throw it on your two bus or if something's not quite as loud as you need it to be, it just has a way of blooming and adding. It's not just turning it up. You're just like, well, why wouldn't you just turn it up? It's not turning it up. It's adding harmonic content that wasn't there originally. So it raises the perceived loudness. Exactly. And it's a richer, more complex sound than what you started with. Awesome. Great tip, man. That's exciting. All right. So now how about a resource or, um, you know, something online that you want to hit people to for the business side of doing this? Just any, any, any advice, online service tool, person, attitude? Hofa has a plugin and it's called For You Project Time. And basically you throw this on any channel, doesn't pass audio again. It just simply as soon as your session opens, it keeps a counter going of how much time you've spent on that session. Wow. And, and if you go to the bathroom, you pause it, or if you have to take a lunch break, you pause it. If you remember to pa- unpause it when you get back, it'll keep a counter going. And 
even if you're not charging by the hour, that still gives you a good accounting of how much of your man hours you've put into that session. So if you're on a project rate with someone, you can say, well, that just took 10 hours. I was only paid for four of them. That kind of sucks. Let's change this. <laughs> That's really cool. So does it also have like an online component or something where you can link it up to particular projects in the particular no. session? And in fact, I, I've written um, the people that take advice for betas for Avid. I'm like, that should be a function of Pro Tools where you could actually create an invoice straight out of your session. And it's a way for the client to know that you're you're being completely honest about the amount of time you spent. Yeah. Like even if it's bouncing the disc, it's still taking up your time, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I use some other timers, but it's sometimes hard to remember to turn them on and off. And, you know, there's just, sometimes when you're jumping around, you, you look back at it and you realize you did spend a lot of time opening up sessions and doing little things here and there that adds up. So that could be really helpful. Or if you're flipping between different projects and don't want to have to keep restarting an external timer, it sounds like that one would help you keep track of how much time you spent with each different client. So now, how about an organizational tool, something that uh, you use online that just kind of keeps your world organized? Um, Dropbox and iCloud is my new way of uh, not having to burn a CD to go listen to it in the car. Yeah. You just you dr dump your mix into iTunes or something like that. I'm not sure exactly. I don't use iCloud myself. Um, it's just part of your OS, so you literally just drag the file to the iCloud drive, and then it shows up on your phone. You download it, and then it's ready to be played. Nice. Um, all right. Well, so Chris, last two questions here. Imagine yourself starting over. If you had to do this all over again, move to a new town, start with a simple get up to record, find people to make music and make records with and make ends meet. Uh, what what would you do or what advice would you give to somebody else who might be finding themselves in that situation now? What's a simple setup? How do you find people? How do you pay the bills in the meantime? <laughs> Simple setup. Um, it's, I guess, what I would use when I travel with Kings of Leon um, as my hotel rig. And it sounds simple because it fits in your backpack and you can get through TSA with it. But it's not simple because there's so many components to go to it. What's that? <laughs> Are you ready for a list? Yeah. So my MacBook Pro, Universal Audio Apollo Twin. I have an Audio-Technica A5400 mic that I, it's like a condenser that has the same capsule as the 4050 but it's smaller. My trusty headphones. I have some, the, the buyers that I spoke about, but I also have these Sennheisers that have a little more low end. So I can kind of do a low end check with those. All my iLocks, the LaCie Rugged Thunderbolt USB drives. Got a little boom box cube called the UE Boom. So you can hear it with air. Nice. <laughs> All the Thunderbolt USB hubs, power adapters, international power. It's just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I got to say, Apple has really <laughs> pissed me off with this new version of their MacBook Pro because all this stuff gets amplified because now you have to have an adapter for the adapter for the USB-C or whatever they're calling it. Right. It starts to become this, this compact little laptop starts to become um, not so compact when you can't sit it on your lap because there's too many things poking out the yeah, side of it's it. Daunting. And then you, you worry about leaving things behind at the venue or at the hotel. And you're like, oh, dude, I need to plug into a Cat5. Like, oh, where's my Thunderbolt cable to adapt or dongle? So I got a little tip that I'm guessing you probably have some version of this too. 
one of the biggest challenges in there is the iLock, right? And iLock Rockstars is your little dongle for the side of your computer, if you're not using one already, that stores the license for your plugins and for your DAW. So you can, and it's the one of a kind license too. So you can literally have thousands and thousands of dollars on this one little USB iLock and it's tiny. It's so easy to lose or the break. thing. My, yeah, or break. And my my sort of simple solution recently has been to, because it has a little link on there where you could put a, a lanyard, hook it through or a string. I just loop rubber bands in there so that I have this little iLock, but I've got like, you know, a whole bunch of rubber bands attached to it that make it really easy to not lose it or see it in the bag or grab it and pull it out. So I don't know if you do any tricks like that, but if you link it to a lanyard, I wish you could tie it to your computer. I wish that there was a drawer in your computer that you could open a little latch, stick an internal USB and then close it. And it just becomes part of the machine. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing for my Mac Pro. I wish you could just have an internal USB row and just plug your iLock right into it there. Well, you're sponsored by Apple, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, nope, not yet, not yet. All right, Chris, so here comes the last question. Or, or no, I'm sorry, that was your simple setup. What would you? What advice would you tell people about finding music, musicians, people to work with? Um, I'm not really good at this, but I would certainly find a way to become very vocal on social media, have a really good Wi-Fi signal. It seems like that's how people are making it the new business model work for them. Yeah. I'm all about getting out there in the world and meeting people flesh to flesh, but it's a new world. You got to have to be good at both. You know, it's too bad, dude, because I mean, like if you had been good at social media and, you know, spending a lot more time um, messing around with Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, you might have, who knows, you might have had an opportunity to work with one of your, you know, great mentors like Prince one day. <laughs> Actually, you used to find <laughs> musicians via YouTube. He would see some video, and then next thing you know, somebody's in town that was just on oh, YouTube. Oh, that's cool. Got to jam with the band. That's really cool. I like hearing that story. Um, all right. Well, then let's um, – do you want to answer the uh, making ends meet question too? I mean, what would you tell somebody that they should only work in making money doing records to start or that, that it's, it's okay to go deliver pizzas to start? Or what's your thought on that? Dude, I think it's, everybody has their own path and they have to figure it out. I could tell you what I did and it wouldn't work for you. Or I don't really have advice. It's so hard because budgets are so tiny compared to what they used to be. And you know, we used to make a pretty decent living doing this. And now you have to do all this other stuff to, to go along with it. It's like the workload is worse and the pay is worse. So yeah, it, it, I know it sounds dark, but it you really have to be cut out for this. It's not for everybody. Well, I did have a question from a rock star um, that I didn't get a chance to ask yet. She wanted to know, what advice would you have for them if they've already been recording for three years and they're still feeling really frustrated about the recording process um, and they're feeling ready to throw in the towel? What, what response would you have to somebody saying that? I've been working hard at this for three years. I feel like I'm ready to throw in the towel. Um. If you're trying to do it as a hobby, then I'd say stick with it and just keep it fun. Have fun while you're doing it. 
if you're trying to do it on a professional level, that's part of the, the thing that separates the boys from the men is having the perseverance and the financial means of even suffering through it. If you have a family and kids and I just can't see you throwing yourself in that world and expecting it to always provide, you know, it's a long journey. And if you're married and your spouse doesn't understand it, yeah. forget about it. I would say move on to something else. Forget about it. Because that's the key, man, is just being able to stick through it. You got to go through a lot. And a lot of times you're not respected. People don't care what you do for them. And you still have to have a great attitude and smile and enjoy it. And that's hard to do. You have to have the personality to deal with that. Yeah. You have to have a bulldog mentality about getting paid and having invoices turned in on time. And there's so many elements that go into it. And if you're three years in, maybe you still have not enough of your life invested in it that it's not too late to do something else. And I don't mean to sound dark, but if you can't deal with it, then it's it's a really hard thing to suggest someone go into voluntarily. <laughs> right, right. It's just so hard to do professionally. And I still, I'm Grammy nominated and I still, you know, deal with not being happy with my workload or income stream or amount of plugins that I have to buy to stay up and keep competitive with, you know, it's just daunting. Yeah. But I guess part of the takeaway is that um, it takes a lot more than three years. Um, it, I know people that flew into a town and worked with somebody and had hits out, not necessarily hits, but a big record out within a year. So that can happen too. It's Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. You know, it could turn out great or it could be 20 years later, you stick with it and all of a sudden, oh, well, that's a nice little token of appreciation. Yeah. It's Vegas wherever you are. All right. Well, so Chris, here comes our last question. It's the final one. And this is a hypothetical, but we're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine. Chris James, you're going to go back in time and meet young Chris. I don't know if you're going to meet young Chris. Maybe, maybe you're catching young Chris just after a... Uh, or just before a, a Stinky Mifflin show with Lidge in college, <laughs> or maybe it's earlier than that. But you can tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around, hey, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I come back to give you this one bit of advice. This is the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself, you belong here. Um, dress better. Groom yourself. Speak up. Shut up. You belong here. Nice, man. You've got to write those lyrics down, man. That's a hit right there. No, but seriously, a lot of times you're thrown in situations with rich or famous people, and you're not rich or famous, but you still have to somehow. Yeah. So it, it's daunting sometimes. At least I don't have the personality to be like, hey, bro, like to somebody who's not treating me right. Or even if, you know, it's just like I've, I'm not rich or famous. So how do I interface what I do into your world? Because at the end of the day, I'm here to service your musical aspirations. Yeah. So you, you do have to tell yourself you belong here. You know, even even though this guy doesn't know who you are or this diva doesn't know who you are, you belong here. You deserve to be here. And if they have an issue with their headphones, there's a respectful way to say, you know. Could I have a little more reverb or... Wait, what does Dave Chappelle say? He goes, man, turn them shits up. Man. Turn my turn headphones up. up. <laughs> All right, man. Great advice, dude. And really great hanging out with you. Um, 
Thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. Can you let the Rockstars know how they can learn more about you, where can they find you online and follow you, reach out to you? Sure. Um, My website is www.chrisjamespro.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the same handle, Chris James Pro. Smart, man. That's a pro method right there. Make all your handles the same, rock stars, so you don't have five different ones out there. Because that'll really, that gets kind of to be a hassle. Um, Chris, thanks, dude. It's great hanging out with you, man. Thanks for sharing all the great stories. Congratulations on your nomination for a Grammy. And I hope you win it. And, um, Congratulations. Probably the biggest congratulations is on just continuing to do this for decades. I look forward to seeing you around the studio, dude. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right, dude. A pleasure, man. Cool. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.